Welcome to the Mid-Atlantic Championship Podcast, a podcast that travels back into time to review classic episodes of Jim Crockett Promotions Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling as it appears on the NBC Universal streaming service Peacock as well as internationally on the WWE Network. Before we begin today's voyage, I'd just like to note we have social media on several platforms. Our Twitter is the most active, but we have a Facebook page and more. Just search at Mid-Atlantic Pod and look for the logo. And if you want to follow along with us but don't have access to Peacock or the network, you can still do so by heading over to the MightyMidAtlanticGateway.com and checking out David Taub's reviews of these classic shows. We'd also appreciate you heading over to YouTube.com slash MidAtlanticPod where you can find full podcasts, truncated versions of classic episodes, plus special audio and video clips exclusive to our page and often with the great assistance of the Mighty Mid-Atlantic Gateway website. Go to youtube.com slash midatlanticpod and please subscribe, watch, and like the videos. It would be doing us a great service. Now with all that out of the way, today in episode number 47, we take a look at the television that was taped on Wednesday, December 15th, 1982 at the WPCQ Studios Channel 36 in Charlotte, North Carolina and began airing in local markets beginning that weekend of Saturday, December 18th. I'd like to bring in my co-host right now, Roman Gomez. Roman, how are you today? I'm doing good, Mike, and there's a couple things to be excited about on this episode, and even though it's 40 years ago, I don't want to spoil it for people, but looking forward to talking about this week's episode. Oh, uh, yeah, it's a it's a fun one at times, definitely during this episode, and the show for the third consecutive week opens with Bob Cottle standing at the podium, so it seems as if the experiment to come on the air with action already in the ring has been tabled for at least the time being. Bob runs down what we're going to see on the show before welcoming in Sweet Brown Sugar Skip Young, who asks to show a tape of an incident he had with Dory Funk Jr., and that's where we'll pick it up. I have Sweet Brown Sugar and Dory Funk Jr. As you know, he has a challenge match for $100,000, Mr. Funk. I'd like for you to sign this contract to wrestle. Sweet brown sugar. First, sugar, if you will sign. David, I'll be more than happy to put my, ni- my name on the dotted line because that kind of money, I, he made me an offer I can't refuse. That's right. It is $400,000, isn't that correct? Right, and as I understand, the time limit is being extended to 15 minutes in a match between myself and sweet brown sugar. That's correct. And uh, to be very honest... I don't think that the competition now, has been stiff enough, now, and I'm willing to extend the time limit to 15 right, minutes. Uh, that's good, but uh, you don't understand all the stipulations in this match. It is extended, the time limit, and, of course, there is a provision in here for a special referee. And that, you understand that? The that's special referee, me. though, is Ernie Shavers. Ernie Shavers? Ernie Shavers. Is, Ain't Ernie Shavers. Ernie Shavers is a special referee. What are you, Mid-Atlantic Promotions... And sweet brown sugar trying to do. You it's signed the contract. Putting, no, I signed the contract. I agreed to a special referee, but I'm tired of you, Mid Atlantic Promotions, good. teaming up on me. Don't sit there and laugh. You know, come on now. Come on. Come on. Hey. That's what happened, uh, Dory Funk Jr. and you, right? Now, Dory Funk Jr., I want to tell you something right now. You have unleashed a terror in this area that you won't believe. 
In other words, you've started a war you can't finish. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. And Bob, I'm telling you, I don't care where it is, but I'm going to whoop him. I'm going to whoop him just like he stole something. Because understand, the last time I got beaten, kicked like I was a dog is when my daddy dogged me. But mister, you don't look like my daddy. You understand what I'm talking about? We gonna throw down. I mean, we gonna throw down until the down can't get down no more. And that's my promise from me to you, Dory Funk Jr. So you tell you what, you give your soul to somebody that's gonna have mercy on it because I guarantee you when we meet in this area again, your body is going to belong to me. I'm going to whoop it until it came rope like okra. All right. There we hear from Sweet Brown Sugar, Dory Funk Jr., back from his tour of all Japan, and he's gone right back into working his $100,000 challenge. And, in fact, as you heard, we're jump-starting it. The time limit is now 15 minutes up from 10. Heavyweight boxer Ernie Shavers has been named special referee for an upcoming match. The date was not given there but it would actually be on December 26th, the day after Christmas in Greensboro. And then you heard Funk attack Sugar, some uppercuts, a body slam onto the floor, and that's that, Roman. So we are jumping right into Dory Funk Jr., now back from all Japan, the booker of the territory against a old opponent from Florida, Sweet Brown Sugar. Yeah, Dory is not a big fan of having the wool pulled over his eyes. And, you know, Sweet Brown Sugar was over there chuckling and, having a good time and Dory laid into him and sweet brown sugar, you know, he wants revenge. And, but what they didn't show is that immediately after signing the contract, Marty Funk ran out, scratched out Dory's signature and said that David Crockett would have to pay her for the contract. It's a crossover of Arcadian <laughs> Vanguard. You're at a loss for words, aren't you, Mike? <laughs> it's a crossover of Arcadian Vanguard universes here that I wish I had the uh, exact. Uh, do you have the episode of that uh, 605 Super <laughs> Podcast where your your story was Super told? Podcast. Yeah, it should be uh, either episode 98 or 99. <laughs> That's uh, <laughs> I couldn't resist. It was it was set up on a tee for me, Mike. I had to knock it out the park craziest part is right before she did that she was running around the podium with an ipad recording everything and then uploaded it and says she's actually got the rights not not jim crockett promotions but to take it back to the uh to the 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 match itself uh coming up between sugar and dory funk jr uh i grew up a big boxing fan ernie shavers was one of those names growing up in the early 80s he was still at it then even though he was more of an opponent but his ability to take a punch, and more so his ability to land a punch with a very high velocity, with very heavy hands, was pretty legendary. He had lost to Muhammad Ali in 1977 and Larry Holmes in 1979, but, but definitely rocked Ali. Uh, it really, if you want to go back and look at what Ernie Shavers is best known for, and this is on YouTube, it is in plenty of locations where Jimmy Young and Jimmy Ellis in 1973, and Ken Norton in 1979, who he laid waste to. Just a brutal, heavy-handed guy, and a guy that, much like uh, a lot of heavyweight boxers, would uh, play the referee role. Uh, Joe Lewis would do that famously in Jim Crockett promotions in the Carolinas. Uh, Cowboy Latrell loved having that in Florida, and that's something that went on to Eddie Graham, and obviously Dory Funk Jr. here as well, too, bringing in 
Ernie Shavers for the day after Christmas, but after all of that wrapped up, we faded to black, and when we got back, Sergeant Slaughter and Don Kernoodle were in the ring waiting for their match when suddenly they were attacked. By who? Of course, Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood, not back from Japan as we know now, but back from a debilitating injury Youngblood suffered at the hands of the Marines. And uh, after a quick break, Kernoodle and Slaughter had their match, but I gotta let you hear what that sounded like. All right, fans, you're looking right there at the World Tag Team Champions, Sergeant Slaughter and Don Kenoda. And charging into the ring is Steamboat and Jay Youngblood. And Slaughter and Kenoda quickly get out of the ring. And Steamboat, Youngblood chasing them around the ring. Here is Slaughter over here at the desk. And here is Kenoda again hiding now behind the desk. And there goes Steamboat. And they're all over the set. They're fighting each other as they come. Well, that was awesome. Steamboat Youngblood coming out, attacking Slaughter and Canoodle Roman. A, uh, the first time we've seen them. And what an impact they, they have coming back going after the NWA World Tag Team Champions. Yeah, it was awesome. And I had been clamoring for it for weeks. And evidently, I wasn't the only one. If you listen to the crowd, they were so excited to see Steamboat and Youngblood come back. And attack slaughter and canoodle and that was just a great segment it really really was and we take a as you heard a, a quick break canoodle and slaughter had their match uh, against abe jacobs longtime veteran and the up-and-coming mike davis our referee for the day is Stu schwartz and davis and jacobs actually controlled the action early on on canoodle tagging in and out and as the champions tried to regain their bearings after brawling with steamboat and youngblood Good match, good solid TV match after everything settled down. Obviously, Kernoodle and Slaughter go back onto the offensive and eventually hit the atomic bomb on Davis to get the pin. And then Steamboat and Youngblood went and attacked them again, Roman. So a uh, a pretty awesome deal there. And in fact, before I get your thoughts, we might as well hear how that match ended with Steamboat and Youngblood coming back out after Slaughter and Kernoodle. to make the tag. He's going to hold Davis into the air. Let's see if it's going to be the atomic bomb, and it is. Slaughter now hooks that leg. He's got him pinned. He's got him covered. One, two, three. And here comes Steamboat and Youngblood again into the studio and into the ring. As they charge into the ring and they get Kenodal and they get Slaughter. Slaughter goes out of the ring and over the top rope, hard down on the floor. Steamboat just, and they're trying to drag him back in. And Kernodal, Kernodal and Slaughter finally managed to escape. Watch right here, fans, the end of this match in slow motion. As Kernodal has him high to the air, Slaughter off. With that cannon blow from that top rope, one, two, three. And in slow motion, you see it. It's all over right here. Well, Roman, sorry I had to make you wait to give your thoughts there, but I might as well play the end. And, and you know, you've been waiting for several weeks now. You've, you've had to watch over and over and over again Don Carnoodle and Sergeant Slaughter play that tape of November 12th, putting Jay Youngblood in the hospital, wanting to put him in the morgue, in the graveyard, as Sergeant Slaughter would say. 
But uh, now that you heard that part of it, give your thoughts on the whole scenario, how everything played out, including the match itself, which again, was really designed very nicely with Slaughter and Cronoodle. Really, you know, Mike Davis has been, where Ron Ritchie's falling down the card, Mike Davis continues to establish himself a little bit more on the up and up. And obviously Abe Jacobs, a legendary name in the area. He's always been there to this date as we record this broadcast in early 2022. Abe Jacobs still alive. The Kiwi roll, a good friend of Mike Mooneyham of the Charleston Post and Courier, who's a good friend of Jim Crockett Promotions and professional wrestling itself. But uh, again, I've drawn it out even further for you, my friend. Give your thoughts. I thought this was really good job of storytelling, you know, real subtle, but very good in the fact that they had Davis and Jacobs have the advantage to start the match. And it makes sense. You know, if you're looking at it from Slaughter and Carnoodle's perspective, you're not expecting Steamboat and Youngblood to be at, at the TV studio. And they run out and attack you. So the fact that Davis and Jacobs had the advantage, it kind of made the champions look a little flustered, which I thought was real subtle, but very effective storytelling. And uh, yeah, this was a good match. And it was kind of interesting when Slaughter went for the cover, he had kind of a confused look on his face because the referee wasn't where he was supposed to be. He was escorting Cornoodle out of the ring, but eventually the ref turned around, got the one, two, three, and then Steamboat and Youngblood ran out again crowd goes crazy and it's just turning up the heat and i thought it was great yeah just really excellent stuff and obviously it just continues to take off from here but you know what's also important at this point as we look forward is the fact that while this was not out of control truly in the small scheme of the matter it does begin what happens to be a trend between the two teams that will lead towards why we end up having a cage match in Greensboro coming up in March of 1983, but we won't look ahead too far there. In fact, we'll look back just a a little bit here as Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood, back from Jay Youngblood's debilitating neck injury, of course, but also back from Japan where they finished Six out of seven teams, only three points in the real-world tag league that was taking place from November 26th to December 13th. uh, Terry and Dory Funk won nine points. Who finished second? Bruiser Brody and Stan Hansen, not bad, with eight. Giant Baba and Jumbo Saruta with eight. Harley Race and Dick Slater, who we will be seeing come into the area very soon, seven points. Tenru and Asahuru Hara with five, and then Umensoke Ueda and Super Destroyer, who was Scott Harg Irwin, took the collar, zero points, finished in last place. But some of those Steamboat and Youngblood matches, I'm sure, are still available. I mean, All Japan and New Japan did wonders. The TV network's keeping those tapes. So if you want to see anything from that time, you really want to see some great Steamboat and Youngblood. Uh, Don't forget to watch their Japanese exploits as well as what they did here in the Mid-Atlantic, which are, is going to be getting great, not only with Slaughter and Crew Noodle, but of course the Briscoes in 1983 as well. But as you heard going to break there uh, on the WWE Network, we didn't even fade to black, though. We, we just went seamlessly into the introductions for our next match, a tag team match between Bob Orton Jr. and the Boogie Woogie Man Jimmy Valiant, making his return to the area against Jim Dalton, and Rick Harris, and 
really, Valiant hasn't even been gone from the area. He had a world title match against Ric Flair on November 28th, but he's taken a back seat on TV while we've been getting this heavy heat on Roddy Piper, but now with Roddy Piper having his face all scuffed up on the ground, who's going to battle the House of Humperdinck? Well, of course, it's going to be the boogie-woogie man Jimmy Valiant. Sir Oliver Humperdinck has not forgotten about what Jimmy Valiant did to Ivan Koloff, has not forgotten about what Jimmy Valiant did to Joe LaDuke. He's got a new man coming into the area, which we're going to see coming up. But Bob Orton and Jimmy Valiant together as a tag team, another week of Bob Orton means it's time for a new finisher. And this time around, they finished off Jim Dalton with a spike pile driver, Valiant giving the assist. Roman, again, you know, I know you want to see the superplex, but I, it, it makes me wonder, are they, are they doing this on purpose or with Orton? I guess we're going to have to see in his next singles match, but it is, it's, it's kind of fascinating. We're seeing this with Brian Danielson in AEW in 2022, where he is just choosing to finish off different people with different, uh, different finishers. Yeah, Orton and Valiant. Boy, you talk about wrestling's odd couple. You know, Orton is a great technician that just never, to me, seemed believable in the babyface role. Then you got Valiant, who knows about three moves, and yet he's wildly popular. But that spike pile driver did look good. You know, I know it wasn't the superplex, but that was a a cool-looking move with the spike pile driver. And it just kind of shows the versatility of Orton that he can beat you in a billion different ways. It was good to see Dalton again, even though his team got squashed in less than four minutes. Yes, illegal in Tennessee, legal in the Carolinas for right now. The pile driver, even the spike pile driver. But not only do we get to see Bob Orton and Jimmy Valiant together as a team, we get to hear them battle back and forth on the mic with Bob Cottle. Inspiring, brother. Makes you want to get out there and do something. Enthusiasm at its greatest. I don't think the canoodle and slider is safe. Steamboat's back, Youngblood's back, me and the Boogie Woogie Man, you gotta watch out for Piper, and the Boogie Wen, or me, do you, nothing's safe, Humperdinck, nothing's safe, brother, look at this man, ready for action, I'm telling you. You know something, baby, I got my man with me, this is a street fighter, brothers and sisters know what I'm talking about, Mr. Humperdinck, bring them all in, daddy-o, it don't matter. It don't matter. I understand they're bringing boards in, but this is what's happening. Piper, myself, and the big boy, cowboy, we're ready. We're going to take them all on. All right, they're talking about that. What about what about the referee? What about what about Ernie Shavers? Ernie Shavers, yeah, let me put that. it to you this way. I'll be as honest and frank as I can. I think a wrestler can beat a boxer any day unless a boxer hits him right on the button first. But Ernie Shavers isn't coming here to wrestle or to box. He's coming here to referee, to keep law and order, brother. And that's exactly what's needed right now because Humper drinks bringing in some mean men. We're no slouches ourselves. Right. There's not too many more wrestling matches. There's street fights or brawls. They need a man like Ernie Shavers to control the There you hear from the boogie-woogie man, Jimmy Valiant, and Bob Orton Jr., the cowboy being put in a position to not only talk about his feud, but he's one of the top baby faces now with Roddy Piper not being there, Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood coming back, but they are hyper-focused on Sergeant Slaughter and Don Carnoodle, Sweet Brown Sugar, he's at a certain level right now. He's with Leroy Brown. He's with Dory Funk Jr. It's on the boogeyman, and it's on Bob Orton Jr. to carry the load, Roman. I thought did a good job right there. 
talked about Ernie Shavers being involved in the Dory Funk Jr. situation, talked about Slaughter and Cronoodle, and then obviously talked about what he's got going on, teaming up with the Boogie Woogie Man. Yeah, Orton did do a good job there, and it's kind of ironic, you know, where he mentions that a wrestler will beat a boxer because I just have him flashbacks a couple years later when he became known as Boxing Bob. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, or- Orton's done a good job in promos these last couple weeks. The show went to break, and when it returned, Sir Oliver Humperdinck was alongside his new charge, the one-man gang, George Gray. The name Gray would obviously be dropped in short order, and the name that Ronnie Garvin had made famous in Knoxville would be usurped by this big man who Humperdinck would hype up right here. Here, Sir Oliver Humperdinck, but who is this beside you? Who is this besides me? The wrestling world is going to be sitting on its ear in just a few minutes because this, my friend, is my friend, the one-man gang. Take a look at the man, six foot nine inches tall, 420 pounds, and you know what, Bob Cattle? He's here to do exactly what I want him to do. And what I want him to do is get his hands on Jimmy Valiant any place, any time, anywhere, and the big man is going to do him in. I can guarantee that. I want everybody to take a look at the boot this man wears. Take a good look at the boot compared to my shoe. Now, I'm not a small man myself, but you're looking at a size 16 boot, Daddy. And Jimmy Valiant, I heard you out here spouting off how great you are. Well, you're not great until you get past this monster. Just when you think it's going all right, Humperdinck pulls out another monster out of the bottom of the bag. Well, we're going to show this punk right here exactly how it's done. George, come on. All right, fans, there it is, Sir Oliver Humperdinck. We're going to watch the one-man gang in action in the ring, all six foot nine and over 400 pounds of him. And, of course, George Gray is the name, the one-man gang. One-man gang, that's what I want everybody to realize, and especially Jimmy Valiant. Jack Briscoe, Bobby Orton Jr., and the rest of you punks around here. I want to show you what a real man and a real one-man gang looks like. A real man, a real one-man gang. George Gray, you heard Sir Oliver Humperdinck. We're not going to use George Gray anymore. He's only going to be known as the one-man gang. Obviously sporting a much different appearance than many people would come to recognize the gang in 1986 and world-class, the UWF, and then later on in the World Wrestling Federation before he became Akeem the African Dream alongside the Doctor of Style Slick, but a uh, legendary character of the one-man gang, and we see him in an early incarnation here right after being saved out of Knoxville. You know, we've seen a lot of those guys who were in Poffo's ICW migrate into mid-Atlantic, Roman, and here's just another example of one, the one-man gang. Yeah, and, you know, you talked about his physical appearance. Besides the long hair, he looked a lot leaner for him compared to how he used to be. He he got a lot heavier as time went on, but, uh, yeah, one-man gang, part of the House of Humperdinck, trying to make a name for himself in the Mid-Atlantic area. And as you heard, their gang was getting into the ring. He went on to face Keith Larson. Basically, got a very quick victory, running power slam. Really not much to discuss here. It was what you wanted. It was a dominant performance out of the gang with Larson getting no offense, with Humperdinck on the mic just just hyping him up. But then it was time for the people to really be excited because it was now finally time, after seeing them run in on Slaughter and Cronoodle twice, it was time for the studio audience and for all of us at home to finally hear from Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood. 
Fans with us at ringside right now, Rick Steamboat, and it's great to welcome this young man back, Jay Youngblood. Jay? I'll tell you what, it probably fooled a lot of people, Mr. Cottle, seeing no this face right here come back to the area. Mr. Slaughter, Mr. Canoodle, the present world heavyweight tag team champions. That's right, Youngblood and Steamboat are back. You put me out of wrestling for a long time. You took food off of my table. You cost me a lot of money, Slaughter, Canoodle. Whatever happened in this ring earlier, brother, and whatever happened out here is just a small sample of what's going to happen. Like I said, you almost broke my neck. You almost put me out of wrestling for good. But my friend, I guarantee you just as sure as I'm standing here, whatever it takes, whatever Youngblood and Steamboat have to do, we are going to get rid of you and become the new world tag team champions. You know something, Bob? I know, Youngblood knows, that week after week on TV, Canoodle and Slaughter have been getting out here and saying, where's Steamboat? Where's Youngblood? They're no longer around. They're not wrestling in the area anymore. We hurt Youngblood. We put them out of business. We put them out of professional wrestling, making a big name for themselves. Well, I'll tell you something, brother. We were here, right here, and now, where are you guys? Sure, we interfered a little earlier. We were right there, right on your can, kicking it all over this studio. And right here now, we're standing and we're calling at you. We know you're looking in the monitors. We know you can hear us. You know that we want a piece of you and you're scared like chickens. You won't come out. We know it. Hey. Bob, there's no sense in me raising my voice because we've met our point. Cronoodle, Slaughter, you are ours. And I guarantee you, it is not going to stop here in the ring or in the parking lot. It may go on forever, but you're ours. And there we get to hear from the good guys, Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood, offering a warning to Slaughter and Carnoodle, just like Slaughter and Carnoodle would, no matter where you are, whether it be in the ring, in the locker room, outside in the parking lot, maybe when you're going to shopping, it, it doesn't matter they are going to be coming after Slaughter and Carnoodle, so a great fiery promo right there. And you know it's a good promo, Roman, too. And you know you got guys who are over when the crowd is shushing the rest of the crowd to shut up so they could hear what these guys have to say. Exactly. And, you know, there's certain shows that they're just better when certain people are on it. And anytime Steamboat and Youngblood are on it, the show's just a little bit better. When Piper's on it, the show's just a little bit better. And fired up baby faces going after the heels. I mean, that's just, that's money in the bank right there. We then went to break. And when we got back, Dory Funk Jr. was in the ring and ready to take on Ron Ritchie. And uh, this was a very Dory Funk Jr. match. It was lots of holds, which gave Bob time to run down some of what we've seen on the show so far. Ritchie did get in a little bit of offense. He kicked out of two suplexes that were framed as near pinfalls and got a sunset flip for a near fall himself, but the young man eventually attempted to leapfrog Funk, who clipped his leg, and that allowed Funk to wrap on the Indian deathlock, or I'm sorry, the spinning toehold and get the victory there, and then we got a double dose of Dory Funk Jr., one in lieu of promo, and then one that aired for everyone on the show, uh, no matter where they were watching, they were very Dory Funk Jr. promos. Uh, the powers that be are trying to get him out of the area because he's too good. That's why they're bringing in Ernie Shavers. That's why the champions are running from him. The feud with Sweet Brown Sugar started in Florida. 
And speaking of Florida, he also wants Dusty Rhodes, and he wants Mike Graham, who must be too scared to face him for $100,000, Roman. And, you know, I don't want to dismiss any of this. It was all very workmanlike. It was all very well done from Dory Funk Jr., the match and the two promos. Accomplished everything it needed to, but uh, on a show where we have so much going on, it's certainly, yeah, it was certainly a clashing of eras, I guess I could say. Certainly styles. Yeah, Dor- yeah uh, Dory, a little more slower, methodic. Yeah, it is a little bit different style. And, you know, the match with Richie, Richie got in just enough offense to kind of extend it. Maybe not offense, but kicking out of moves, just enough to extend it a little bit longer. But I thought the finish, the timing seemed a little off with the leapfrog and how Dory kind of clipped him in the hamstring. It, it looked like somebody's timing was a little off. That came off a little wonky, but you know, Dory ended up getting the victory and then he cuts a couple promos and, you know, same kind of calm, melancholy type Dory interviews that we're used to. Yeah, we'll have to see what the people think about that one, Roman. I thought it was actually an intentional thing. The crowd actually took it like it may have been a botch, kind of laughed a little bit at Ron Ritchie, but Ritchie on the way out of the area, Dory Funk Jr. established one of his big projects, Mike Rotundo, faced off against Ken Timms in the next match. And he had a hat on. A hat. He's facing off against Ken Timms and he's got a hat. The podium was Bob Orton Jr. At ringside was the boogie-woogie man, Jimmy Valiant, in a rainbow-colored handkerchief who would come over to do some commentary, but he was mostly there to be at ringside to hype up Mike Rotundo, who's wearing a hat, Roman. Did I, did I say he's wearing a hat? That's part of his new personality. He's got a he's got a hat on. At least it wasn't a captain's hat. That, that's one good thing. It's, it's, it would set the trend for later. Yes, yeah. Uh, it's it's amazing. At this point in history, if you were to fast forward to 1988, we just had the buyout of the Universal Wrestling Federation by Jim Crockett Promotions, who was starting the Wrestling Network, and Kevin Sullivan was the one tasked, the taskmaster, to get over Mike Rotundo and Rick Steiner, and he did it with the Varsity Club, and Mike Rotundo doing interviews there and showing a personality that he would not show at any other point in his career, uh, just amazingly, and you watch him here at this early portion of his career where (laughs) where basically the gimmick is He's got no gimmick. He's he's bland as the day is long, and he needs to learn how to fire up, and that's what this whole thing was about because the deal was the boogie-woogie man kept getting, Mike, get him, get him, and finally Rotundo took a, a thumb to the eye and got tired of Tim's rough tactics, and then he fired up and went on the offensive, and that would have been fine, except the match just kept going. And he threw Tim's out of the ring. Valiant threw him back in, and that looked like that could be it. And then it just went on for several more minutes with Tim's kicking out of stuff and being on the offense a couple of times, and it just got long in the tooth. And I, you know, everything I thought that they, and look, bottom line is the fans stuck with it because of Valiant at ringside, because of Orton, and the fact that they like Rotundo, it, it, it was over. But as you're watching this, I... It's it's amazing how long this match went and how I thought counterproductive it really was. Yeah, it did did go on for a little bit and 
I thought it was interesting with Orton on commentary. You know, when I said he wasn't believable as a babyface, he's on commentary and he sounded like a heel. He told Rotundo, just forget the scientific stuff and punch him in the mouth. That doesn't sound very much like a, like something a babyface would say. And then uh, Rotundo did seem a little more aggressive around the seven-minute mark. He finally applied the airplane spin, and then you can hear Valiant yell out, let's go to the bar. I just... <laughs> It was kind of an interesting match all the way around. Well, <laughs> to be honest and to be fair, let's look at who has taught Bob Orton Jr. in his career to be a babyface. His father, who was a hard man, Eddie Graham, who was a hard man, Mike Graham, Randy Savage, and Dick Slater, I guess would be, to that point, Bob Orton Jr.'s biggest influences. And then he'd tie up with Roddy Piper. And then Don Morocco, and it really, this this is as angelic as I think we've ever gotten Bob Wharton Jr. And I'd, we'd have to ask Barry about Florida, uh, if, if he was able to do this there, or ask uh, one of the guys about Georgia. But I, I, I tell you, this baby-faced Bob Wharton Jr. is truly something else here. And in, fact, and in fact, I didn't originally cut this, so I'm going to actually have to, and you won't hear this, with the magic of editing, I got to uh, do a little switch here of something because I have queued up from the show another clip that I had to play when I went through it a second time before we started recording today. And it's Rotundo in the ring wrestling, and it's Orton and Valiant explaining some of this philosophy that Roman just told you about here when it comes to, to Rotundo and uh, having a new outlook on the wrestling business. Here you go. Mike's coming along. He's going to be rugged. He was a great college wrestler. I said, forget about the hammerlocks. Forget about the double legs. Just punch him right in the face and kick him too, because that's what it's getting down to here, brother. It's coming down to be a war. This is great. I love it. I love the competition. I might not win every time I step in the ring, but brother, look at that, Mike. Look at him go. Oh, the man's fantastic. I love it. <laughs> You know something, Bobby? We had this boy out all week, all week, brother. And I mean, we've been in four bar fights, and he loves it, Daddy. He's been in a ditch three times this week alone. You know, he told him two cars this week, but he's come along fine. He's going to be one of us. Dangerous, brother. He's living dangerous. It's great. Bob, Bob, what you say is that you two have really been teaching Mike Rotundo the ropes of professional wrestling. Let's put it this way. Mike's mother doesn't think a whole lot of Jimmy and I. <laughs> so there you heard a little of the commentary that took place during the match with <laughs> totaling cars, and he's almost one of us right now. I don't know what Rotundo's mother thought about what Bob Orton Jr. had to say. You know, you know, his mother-in-law, is that how that works? His mother-in-law, though, is probably used to this, considering his mother-in-law is married to Black Jack Mulligan Sr., so I don't know. I, I believe this is too early for that to have taken place, but uh, I, I don't know what the timeline is there. But uh, anything you want to add on to uh, Orton there and uh, the boogie woogie no, man? No, there's nothing I can add to that. <laughs> Just, oh my. Uh, the, the boogie woogie man is back. Not only are Steamboat and Youngblood back, but again, an energy that Dory Funk Jr. can't quite provide uh, the boogie woogie man, Jimmy Valiant. It was then uh, time for Sergeant Slaughter and Jay Youngblood 
and Sir Oliver Humperdinck and the one-man gang because it was the end of the show and we got a, a combined set of promos here that, unsurprisingly, very, very good from the NWA World Tag Team Champions. They are first, followed by Hump and the gang. Well, what an exciting hour we've had, fans. All the way from beginning to end. The World Tag Team Champions. Don Carnotal, Sergeant Slaughter coming in. You saw him at the beginning of the program, and we saw him take off and run. And you fellows literally ran away from Rick Steamboat and Jay Youngblood. Well, I see whose side you're on. That's exactly a lie. That's exactly wrong. Sergeant Slaughter and Don Carnotal don't run from anybody. We got the world best to prove it right here. You don't get these world belts from running from people. I'll tell you that right now. You know we've been on a tail-kicking campaign around here. We've been making a few examples. We made an example out of Mr. Rudd. We made a big prime example out of Jay Youngblood. And how in the world, of all the surprises in the world, I would have never guessed that he would have come back right here in this studio, how he could have came back and wrestled again. I'll never know. Well, I'll tell you one thing. We did a half job on him, I guess. There's only one thing left to do. And I'll tell you what, I got with Sergeant Slaughter just a few minutes ago. There's only one thing left for us to do, and that is to hurt both of them and put them out of wrestling permanently, once and for all. Never let them show their faces again, because there's no way they're man enough to wear this. There's no way they can wear it, and I'll guarantee you when they face us again, they're going down permanently, and they'll never be back again. Sergeant Slaughter, tell them just exactly what we have in store for them. Well, Don, all the while I've been watching your back while you've been talking, so I wish you just turn around and watch, make sure they don't come out here again, you know? We didn't run from them because we were scared, like Don said. We just got out of the way because we weren't scheduled to wrestle them. We weren't geared to wrestle them. We never saw, we thought that we'd see them again. They're just like dirty laundry to us. When they're down, we kick them. We kick them when they're down. We kick them when they're up. We kick them where they sit. We kick them all around. You know, Young Blood and Steamboat, it started a long time ago. When I came into this particular Mid-Atlantic wrestling area, I looked for the most lowest rat, the most scum, the maggot of all time to help me conquer the Mid-Atlantic area. And the guy that I picked, the guy that was the lowest, the sleaziest, the slimiest guy, is standing right here. Watch, watch over there for the door. Was Don Cronulla. I picked him because he was already in the other locker room. He knew everything there was. He knew what time they got up. He told me what time they worked out. He told me what they ate. He told me what kind of vitamins they took. He told me the injuries that they had. He told me everything. And when the time was right, I brought Don Cronulla with me. It's been planned for a long time, longer be before I was even here in the Mid-Atlantic area. And now it's all come down to we are the World Tag Team Champions. I guess my plan must have worked because Don Cronulla not only is a great individual in himself, he's a great wrestler and I would love some time for us to go against maybe even Flair and Valentine, but right now, Steamboat and Youngblood, you come out here and you say nasty things about us. You say with a vengeance in your heart, Youngblood, I can see it in your eyes, I can see it in your voice. You want to hurt me real bad, don't you? 
You want to get your hands on me, don't you? Well, you didn't tell the people how it felt to be in that cobra clutch. Did you tell them how you gasped for air, how you couldn't breathe, how the blood started going to your brain, and that was 30 more seconds of young blood? In 30 more seconds. If Steamboat wouldn't have got you off, you wouldn't be here right now. You'd be in the morgue, my friend. You'd be in the morgue, and I don't see why we don't put you there right now. Any arena! I'm talking any arena! Right now! Right now! If you got the guts, come out here right now, and we'll wrestle you. Just remember one thing, the Cobra Clutch. Roman, I just wanted to pause that right there because I think it's very uh, important to point out for anybody that's going to be going back and listening to this shows for historical purposes and to gather information that that is a tell right there. And that is a hint from Sergeant Slaughter talking about how he recruited Don Carnoodle. We don't want to spoil anything for anybody. I don't know how we could 40 years later as we record this show, but. That is uh, that recruiting process, that having a mole in the locker room, that would give Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood some inspiration themselves. So I thought a great, another great interview for Sergeant Slaughter. Obviously, Don Carnoodle, he's the second man in this when it comes to that microphone because Sergeant Slaughter is just so good right now. But, uh, For all intents and purposes, we are 90 days away from Greensboro. And we are, from this point, 60 days away for all, you know, give or take a few, of that other mole coming into play uh, in this feud. So the booking and how this thing was laid out, uh, and, and most of the credit apparently goes to Slaughter, goes to Carnoodle and Steamboat and Youngblood themselves, especially apparently Sergeant Slaughter. Other people obviously had uh, input on this, including you know Dory Fung Jr. as well. But this was essentially their feud that they were going and pulling off and uh, obviously doing a great, great job of it here. So you heard Sergeant Slaughter. You heard him thank Sir Oliver Humperdinck, Big George Gray, the one-man gang. And we will hear Sir Oliver Humperdinck. And the one-man gang, at least growling in the background here, close the show. And it's my pleasure right now, Sir Oliver Humperdinck, thank you for having Mr. Gray watching our backs while we were doing the interview. He's a giant of a man. I don't think I want to tangle with him. He's a pretty big guy. I hope you do the rest of that one. We're going to hurt somebody now. That's exactly right. I've got him with me again. Take a look. The one-man gang. You know, I heard... Jimmy Valiant, Bob Orton Jr. out here saying that Leroy Brown was afraid of Mike Rotundo. Well, brother, you guys better get afraid, and you better get afraid quick, because the one-man gang is here, and he's here to stay, and he's working for me, and every time I get a chance to get him into the ring with any of these punks. And that is that in this episode of Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling for December 18th, 1982, now comes to a close. Of course, next week, Christmas Day, and we'll be watching that episode as well, too, Roman. But uh, anything that you'd like to add here and put a a nice little bow on the proceedings of what was a a very fine show? Yes, Steamboat returning, Youngblood returning. I mean, how can you not give the show a thumbs up? 
You know, a lot of you fans may know Steamboat from his WWF days and whatnot, but I mean, the guy is just a Hall of Famer, an absolute legend. And him and Youngblood, to me, were, even though they were world tag team champions, to me, they were very underrated tag teams. You know, when people talk about the greatest tag teams of all time, oftentimes they're not even mentioned in the top 20, you know. And, but the more you watch them, the more you can't help but like them. They, they're just such a dynamic team. And for them to return and attack Slaughter and Carnoodle was just definite step in the right direction, you know. That way we don't have to keep watching the VTRs of them getting attacked. They're back, and they mean business, and that made this a great episode. Absolutely. and. If you could turn the channel over on Worldwide Wrestling, you also saw Steamboat and Youngblood. They knocked off Ricky Harris and Private Nelson. Also on that show, the Boogie Woogie Man Jimmy Valiant once again teamed up with Cowboy Bob Orton Jr., and they defeated Masafuchi and the future Road Warrior Animal Joe Lauren. The one-man gang defeated Mike Davis. Dory Funk Jr. defeated Keith Larson. And Sergeant Slaughter and Private Canoodle defeated Ron Ritchie. And according to the Clawmaster's archives, some question marks. And looking at uh, who was on the shows, I don't think it would have been Jim Dalton. Could have very well have been Abe Jacobs, but not sure who that opponent was who teamed with Ron Ritchie against Sergeant Slaughter and Private Cronoodle. But uh, I have a feeling that Steamboat and Youngblood probably made their presence felt on that show as well. Let's take time for this commercial message about the Mid-Atlantic Wrestling events coming up in your area. We begin on the same night as the TV tapings, Wednesday, December 15th, Sumter, South Carolina, the County Exhibition Center. The Boogie Woogie Man Jimmy Valiant defeated Joe LaDuke in a cage match. Mike Rotundo defeated Big Leroy Brown by countout. Private Nelson defeated Ben Alexander. Ricky Harris defeated Abe Jacobs and King Parsons defeated Jim Dalton. And that takes us back around to Charlotte, North Carolina, WPCQ Studios, Friday, December 16th, 1982. Why? Because from December 17th to December 24th, there would be no shows due to Christmas. Hanukkah was actually from December 10th to the 18th, so that celebration was wrapping up. But as the promotion had traditionally done for years, they take two weeks off leading into one of their biggest shows of the year, other than Thanksgiving, Christmas Night in Charlotte, which also doubled as a benefit for the Charlotte News Empty Stocking Charity Fund. For years, the company had run Charlotte and Greenville, South Carolina, on Christmas, often adding a third town as well, like Norfolk in 1975 or Hampton in 1976. So. That would wrap up the year for Jim Crockett Promotions, and we will look at the last show of the year. Here's the WWE Network slash Peacock preview for next week, December 25th, 1982. NWA United States Champion Greg Valentine looks to hammer out Porkchop Cash in the main event. As I mentioned earlier on, if you like this show and would like to connect with it more, I invite you to follow us across our many forms of social media especially on Twitter. Just search at MidAtlanticPod. We would also really appreciate you following us on YouTube, youtube.com slash MidAtlanticPod. Full and truncated podcasts, plus great audio and video clips from the rich history of Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling and Jim Crockett Promotions. That's youtube.com slash MidAtlanticPod. I also invite you to support all of the programs and content here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. 
we don't condescend, and we are dedicated to preserving and accurately archiving the history of professional wrestling. And I'm proud that this show, produced by me, can be a part of that. For Roman Gomez, I'm Mike Sempervivi. Take us home, Bob Cottle and Bob DeBartolavin. All right, fans, that's it. And it's been a wild and woolly time. And you hear it there from Paul Jones and Wahoo McDaniel. We'll see you next week. And until then, so long for now. Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling has been furnished to this station for broadcast at this time by Jim Crockett Promotions in exchange for commercial consideration.